0: Calvary Grace. It is a blessing and a privilege to be able to preach God's word to you this morning. So we got a Reformation Sunday sermon last Sunday when Pastor Clint touched on the incredible inheritance that we've received from the Protestant Reformation. This Sunday I've got a one-off sermon here so I'm going to be doing a Reformation Sunday sermon as well even though it's not Reformation Sunday. So we're going to be looking at uh, arguably one of the most important passages in the bible turn with me to romans chapter 1 romans chapter 1 and i'm going to be re- preaching from two simple verses romans 116 and 17 this is the word of the lord The apostle Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Well, let's pray. So heavenly Father, as we approach you now, even as we have through the Lord's Supper, Lord uh, Father, we approach you through the shed blood and the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ and even by your spirit. Father, we pray now that your holy spirit would attend this place as your word is preached, that Christ would be exalted, that the lost would be saved, that the saints would be encouraged and sanctified that this church would be strengthened and fortified all for your glory and the joy of your people. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I begin with a question this morning. It's a very simple question. How can you know that you are accepted by God? How can you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you are accepted by God? That is in light of God's holy and just character and and in light of your sinfulness, how can you know that you are accepted by God? Well, friends, this was the agonizing question that plagued the 16th century German reformer, Martin Luther. He was plagued by this question. He agonized over it. Central to his agony was the passage I'm preaching from this morning, Romans 1 16, specifically verse 17. So, if you look at verse 17, the phrase that Luther could not understand was the righteousness of God. Luther understood the righteousness of God in his day to be the exacting justice of God. So what that means then is he understood the gospel to be a second law, as it were. Where the Old Covenant, where the Ten Commandments condemn sinful humanity, the gospel comes in and further condemns sinful humanity with a second law. That was what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching in Luther's day. Well, as I preach this passage, I'm going to be jumping back and forth uh, to Luther every so often to demonstrate why we as Protestant Christians should cherish and remember the events of the Protestant Reformation and not forget about them, even in the modern church. So Luther had become a monk in order to gain assurance of his acceptance before God. So this is what the church was teaching in his day, and I'm quoting, you must do what lies within you in order to be accepted by God. You notice that. You must do what lies within you. So it was taught that if you try really, really hard, God sort of meets you halfway. He recognizes your efforts. He meets you halfway. He applies his grace. And then he brings you to salvation. So this is a very common illustration in Luther's day. Your religious efforts were understood to be like wooden coins. You gotta remember, Luther was in the medieval era, right? So, your religious efforts were understood to be like wooden coins. And what God does, since He's gracious, is He recognizes your wooden coins, right? Your religious efforts. He meets you there. He sees the wooden coins. But since He's gracious, He turns those wooden coins into golden coins. But of course, it's important to recognize your wooden coins start with you. It's your effort. You must do what lies within you. And so Luther jumped in with both feet into Roman Catholicism, even becoming a monk. He jumped in with uncommon zeal. He could say this, quote, I kept the rules of my monastic order so strictly that I can say, if ever a monk went to heaven on account of his monkery, I should get there too. That's what he said. His, his monkery was to be esteemed. So what about you? Can you know that you were accepted by God, even here this morning, 2023, some 500 years later? Or... Are you trying really really hard to get into God's good books? This is the natural response of simple humanity. We want to try to earn our way to God on our own. So Luther had a deeply sensitive conscience. Eventually he came to the agonizing realization that he could not ultimately know if he had done enough in order for God to accept his efforts. He had a deeply sensitive conscience, and he agonized over this passage, specifically verse 17, but what it caused Luther to do is to drive deep into the scriptures for answers, and with that in mind, let's look at the scriptures now. So let's let's just do a, a quick intro to Romans, just to set the stage here. Paul tells the Roman church that he wants to strengthen them with the gospel. So look at verse 11. Verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now look at verse 15. He says, So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So hold on a second. The Apostle Paul, this is easy to miss. The Apostle Paul is saying that he is eager to preach the gospel to Christians. You might say, well, hold on a sec. I thought the gospel was for non-Christians. For people that need to be saved. Well, not according to the Apostle Paul. He's actually just addressed the Romans as brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul is eager to preach the gospel to Christians. Why? Well, it is through regular gospel preaching, even a diet of gospel preaching that the church is strengthened and fortified. We are forgetful creatures, are we not? And we, we continually, well, depending on your personality, to varying degrees, we all have a tendency to revert back to a performance-based religion. And so Paul wanted to strengthen the Roman church with gospel preaching. And by God's grace, that is my prayer even for Calvary Grace this morning. So in light of that, look at verse 15 again. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And here's our passage. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek well, why would Paul say that he's not ashamed of the gospel? Why would he have to say that? Well, I would suggest to you it's because the gospel is inherently offensive to human pride. The gospel is inherently offensive to human pride. A message that insists that humanity is under the, right, the, the righteous judgment of God because of our sin. And the only way of escape is through trusting in a crucified Messiah, a crucified Messiah. That sounds like an oxymoron to the sinful human mind. That message does not bode well with the sinful human mind. So the Apostle Paul could speak of the offense of the cross in Galatians 5.11. He says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing in 1 Corinthians 1.18. So if we aren't careful as Christians, the gospel can become like uh, that embarrassing secret in your life that you'd rather not have people know about? Is that how you feel about the gospel? Would you rather not have people know that you're a Christian? Well, not so for the Apostle Paul. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Well, that leads to The second point, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? We need to be very clear about this as Christians. There's a lot of confusion even surrounding this question in the modern evangelical church because we're not rooted in our Protestant history. So, Paul gives us a beautiful definition here. What is the gospel? You can see it right there in verse 16. Just look at verse 16. We could say, first, it is the power of God. For salvation to everyone who believes. So let's just go through this. The gospel is the power of God. So think back to Luther's day, and even modern Roman Catholicism, for that matter, still teaches this. You must do what lies within you in order to be saved. So God meets you halfway. We could call it a wooden nickel religion. And wooden nickels are not to be trusted. So you doing what lies within you, does that sound like the gospel, according to Paul here? Well, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. That is, salvation begins and ends with God. It's his work, his idea, his prerogative, his initiative, his effort, his power. Revelation 7.10 tells us that salvation belongs to our God. So one of the things that got drilled into my mind, I just finished theological studies last summer. One of the things that absolutely got drilled into my mind in seminary is you, you never, under any circumstances, plagiarize. Why is that? Well, when you're plagiarizing, you're claiming somebody, somebody else's work as your own work right? So failing to cite somebody else's work is like claiming their work as your own. In the same way, claiming some type of contribution to your salvation is actually robbing God of his glory. It's his work. So do you see that? Or does part of you want to try to get, if you're a believer here, Does part of you want to try to get just a little bit of credit? Just a little bit. Maybe 0.01%. Right? You just want a little bit of credit. No, salvation, brothers and sisters, is of the Lord. The gospel is the power of God. Second, the gospel is for salvation. Now, this might be stating the obvious, but sometimes that doesn't hurt in our day. The gospel, then, is not the power of God that helps you to be a better person. The gospel is not the power of God that gives you more self-esteem. The gospel is not the power of God that helps you realize your full potential or ushers in health and wealth and prosperity. Perhaps some of those things might follow your conversion, right? Some of them could. But that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. This is because humanity, outside of God's grace, is in big trouble. Our biggest problem as human beings is that we are lost sinners under the righteous wrath of God, and without any intervention, we are headed for hell. So just consider this. A search and rescue team is not sent out to rescue you when you're in the comforts of your own living room sitting on the couch, right? When is a search and rescue team sent out to rescue you? When you need to be saved, right? When you need to be saved. So does your understanding of the gospel recognize this? Or do you think of the gospel as more of a self-help scheme? It was Al Mohler, uh, Uh, American theologian in our day, he's noted how in modern evangelicalism the Bible's very clear moral categories have morphed into what we could call, what he calls therapeutic categories. And this is just sort of the lingo that we speak even as evangelicals in our day. So categories like right and wrong, sin and guilt, judgment and salvation have been morphed into categories like unfulfilled, damaged, victimized, lacking self-esteem. See how the the therapeutic uh, essence of those terms? The result of, of this is that instead of recognizing our sin and rebellion against God for what it is, we come to think of ourselves as merely damaged and needing some, just a little bit of assistance from God. Right? What happens then is God becomes our psychiatrist, to help us, sort of like a spiritual life coach, to help us realize our full potential, to to help us be, be a more developed person, right? God is the shrink, and we lie down on his couch. Now, don't get me wrong, and I want to be clear about this. As fallen human beings, we are broken and hurting people. So I'm not disregarding that. I don't want to minimize that reality or be callous about that. That is a true um, experience for us as fallen human beings. But the point is, is salvation is not fundamentally about being fixed by God to then go on your merry way. Salvation recognizes that we are in deep trouble because of our sin and rebellion against Him, and we need to be rescued from the coming wrath from his judgment. So the gospel is about salvation. Third, the gospel is to everyone who believes. That is, the gospel does not discriminate based on any human category. It's not only for one class or one ethnicity or one demographic or one people group. It is for the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, on on, on the surface of it, that statement actually sounds like the gospel discriminates towards the Jew, doesn't it? I'm going to get back into that a little bit later on, but for now, we can see very clearly, what is the gospel? We could say the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. It's right there in verse 16. Now now we're going to get sort of into the heart of the matter, even as it concerned Luther. God's righteousness revealed in the gospel. So verse 17. Verse 17a says this, For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So I'm going to cap out here on this statement for a bit now because understanding what, what um, the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul means here is essential to understanding not only our passage but the whole letter to the Romans. It's actually said that verses 16 and verse 17 here in chapter 1 formed the thesis statement for the entire book. So we can understand verses 16 and verse 17, we're on a very good trajectory for understanding the entire letter to the Romans. So again, Paul says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. So that word revealed here, it's an interesting word in the original, it's apocalyptati. The word revealed is apocalyptitai. And what does that sound like? Apocalypse. Apocalypse. So the idea here is something being, um, something that was formerly hidden being unveiled or revealed. So automatically when we think about the word apocalypse, your mind probably goes to some type of Hollywood Armageddon movie, right? Well that's not actually the case with the original word here uh, in the Greek. Apokalouptitai, it's emphasizing something that was formerly hidden being unveiled. So for example, think about a gender reveal party in our day, right? You go to the gender reveal party, you don't know what the gender of the the baby is, right? Having left the gender reveal party, that has been revealed to you. It makes me think of uh, Pastor Josh Carey, our former associate in now. he, he once did a gender reveal party where it was one of those ones where the men and the women are involved, and he had to think of a manly way of doing it, right? So he filled two balloons, one full of uh, blue stuff, one full of pink stuff, and they floated up, and he busted out his shotgun and he he blew one of the balloons apart. But what happened there? There's a revelation taking place, right? You don't know which balloon has what color until you blast the balloon. It's a revelation. It's an unveiling. So this begs the question then, wasn't God's righteousness revealed in the Old Testament? If the Apostle Paul is telling us that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, what does that mean about God's, what we know about God's character in the Old Testament? Just consider these verses from the Old Testament. Psalm 9, verse 8 tells us that God judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. So we can very clearly see that in the Old Testament, God was understood to be a righteous judge. What about salvation? Psalm 71, verse 2. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. So we could say then that God's, the, uh, at least uh, to a degree, God's righteousness was understood, revealed and understood in the Old Testament, both in regards to judgment and salvation. So what is Paul getting at here? What is Paul getting at? Well, this is where we we move to the tension point of God's character. The tension point of God's character. Flip with me to Exodus 34. I want us all to see this. Some of you are very familiar with this, but it's a very important passage. Exodus 34. If you want to understand God's character, this is one of the most important passages in the Old Testament concerning God's character, Exodus 34. So here at this point, the golden calf incident has just taken place, if you're familiar with that. The the Israelites had so quickly turned to idolatry. And Moses had, had stepped between God and the Israelites to intercede for them. And Moses asks the Lord, Yahweh, to see his glory. Look at the Lord's response to him. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So what is the tension point of God's character? On the one hand, he is merciful and gracious. On the other hand, he is just. Justice will be served. He will not clear the guilty. Just listen to this again. It sounds paradoxical. It even sounds contradictory. Forgiving iniquity and transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. How does this work? Well, this is the tension point in God's character that is revealed in the Old Testament. Just a little story to illustrate this. Last, last summer, I sat at my kitchen table eating breakfast with my kids, At 8 a.m. in the morning, we're eating cereal at the kitchen table. When a man pulled into our back alley, some of you have heard this story, a man pulled into our back alley, he busted out a sawzall. He proceeded to crawl underneath my neighbor's minivan and cut out the catalytic converter. 8 a.m., broad daylight. The car alarm is going off. My neighbor has cameras. I'm a witness. We had all of the evidence we needed. Well, sadly, the cop showed up one minute late. So as I'm filling out this witness report, the cop rather sheepishly said, well, hopefully we can get this guy. And my response to him was, yeah, and hopefully the judge does his job. You know what the cop said? He looked me in the eyes and he said, yeah, it's not gonna happen. And I looked back at him and I said, yeah, I know. If that sounds cynical, just come and move to the north, Northeast with us. <laughs> I've had seven incidences on my plumbing vans in the last five years. And justice largely is not served. So question, how do we get to a point in our country when our judicial system, is so weak that criminals can be so brazen as to steal catalytic converters in broad daylight knowing that if they get caught they're going to get the slap on the hand and they're going to be released the next day. How does that happen? Answer. Some of the judges in this land have forgotten that their job is to administer justice not mercy. Let me say that again. Some of the judges, not all of them, some of the judges in this land have forgotten that their job is to administer justice, not mercy. Here's the crime, here's the consequence, period. I know that sounds harsh, perhaps, to our modern sensitivities, but it's true. When mercy is given without justice being paid, justice is aborted and criminals go free. Not so with God. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, Psalm 89, 14. He will by no means clear the guilty. And we, outside of God's grace, are guilty. Luther understood this in his day. And the self-help religion of his day was no help. It was no help. Well, this leads us to the problem of man's unrighteousness. Have you ever wondered why the Apostle Paul, if you're familiar with the letters of the Romans, the Apostle Paul, he introduces the gospel in the first chapter, right, the first half of the chapter, and then he goes on for two chapters to to describe God's wrath against humanity. What is going on here? It sort of doesn't make sense on the face of it. Well just consider this. If I was a doctor and I told you that I have discovered a cure for cancer, what is your response to me going to be? It's probably gonna be something like, oh, that's great, good for you. I'm so happy for you. But I don't have cancer. So whoop do you do? Right? Now, how would your response to me change if you had cancer, you knew you had cancer, and it was terminal. Now you're going to be a little bit more excited about it, right? What Paul is doing here, after he introduces the gospel, and then he, he, he describes God's wrath against humanity for two chapters, he's painting a vivid picture of the unrighteousness of humanity. So what he's doing then, just, just very briefly, flip back to Romans one now, if you're still in Exodus. What Paul is doing, broad picture, is he's demonstrating the unrighteousness of the Gentiles in the first chapter, and he's demonstrating the unrighteousness of the Jews in the second chapter. He's then demonstrating the unrighteousness of all of humanity in the third chapter before he circles back around to the gospel. So let's just look at this really quick. Look at Romans one, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So this is the sad picture of humanity outside of God's word, that is outside of exposure to God's special revelation. Man, outside of God's word, knows enough about God that he should be honoring him and worshiping him, but he fails to do so, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, and chooses to serve the creature rather than the creator, who is forever blessed. That's what we see here. So we could call this, then, a pagan unrighteousness. A pagan unrighteousness. It's the unrighteousness of the Gentiles. There is no wiggle room for the Gentiles to squirm out of here. The Gentiles stand condemned. So here's the fascinating thing about this passage here. As you turn to chapter 2, you can almost hear the Jews applauding the Apostle Paul at this point, right? You can almost hear them applauding the Apostle Paul. You go, Paul. Look at those dirty Gentiles, right? And then what does he do at the start of chapter 2? Well, he turns his canons now towards the Jews. They don't get out. Look at verses 1 and 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So the Jews, by and large, thought that because they possessed God's law, they possessed God's special revelation, they thought that they were good to go merely by possessing God's law. The problem with that is you, you are not saved by merely possessing God's law. Rather, God's law condemns If you don't think this is speaking of the Jews, just look at verse 17. It makes it clear here. Verse 17 uh, to 21. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now notice this. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Possession of God's law does not make one righteous. In fact, God's law condemns. It shows us that we are unrighteous law breakers. So Paul, for the second half of chapter 1, it's an indictment against what we could call pagan unrighteousness. In chapter 2, it's an indictment against what we could call religious self-righteousness. Now, by the time you get to chapter 3, Paul demonstrates that the whole world stands condemned before God. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Look at verses 19 and 20 now. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now, notice this. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Well, there it is. Jew and Gentile stand condemned for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now that Sunday school verse makes a little bit more sense. Jew and Gentile, everyone, every mouth is stopped, the whole world is accountable before God, he is the righteous judge, and he will by no means clear the guilty. And again, we are guilty luther understood this but again the self-help religion of his day was no help so what about you have you been trying to improve yourself through self-help religion do you understand christianity to be to merely be a self-help religion i just want to ask you if you're being honest with yourself and that's you how is that working out how is that working out well, there is a better way. How is God's righteousness revealed in the gospel? This is what we're trying to get at. Back to 117. Remember the word tie, something that was formerly hidden being revealed. Well, look now at verses 21 to 26 of chapter 3. I, I mentioned this uh, passage last Sunday as I was leading worship, and I said that This passage here, Romans 3, 21 to 26, is arguably the most important passage of Scripture in the entire Bible. If you want to understand the heart of Christianity, if you're new, you know, you're, you're maybe intrigued, you're curious, this is the heart of Christianity right here, Romans 3, 21 to 26. This is how the righteousness of God has been revealed in the gospel. Look at verse 21, chapter 3. But now... because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the gospel. In the gospel, God reveals with stunning beauty and clarity the perfect justice of his character on one hand, he upholds that, while at the same time demonstrating amazing mercy and grace through the cross. So at the cross, Jesus stood in the place of all who would believe and received the just punishment of God. He was put forward as a propitiation. I know that's a big word, maybe some of you aren't familiar with it. It, it, it simply means, a propitiation is a wrath-bearing substitute. A wrath-bearing substitute. So Jesus Christ absorbed and exhausted all of God's righteous wrath, all of his righteous indignation against sinners and turned it to favor. So we could put it like this. At the cross, justice has been served and at the cross, grace is justly granted. This is how the apparent paradox of God's character is resolved. Jesus Christ has lived the perfect life that all of us have failed to live, and he has died the sinner's death that we deserve. And he was raised from the dead, vindicating God's justice and grace. This is the way one New Testament commentator has put it. Quote, In the gospel, the righteous God righteously righteouses." the unrighteous. Let me say it again. In the gospel, the righteous God righteously righteous is the unrighteous. As I'm saying that now, it sort of sounds like surfer dude uh, language or something. But you can see what, what, what this commentator is saying. God is righteously making unrighteous people righteous through the gospel. It's an amazing thing. So what does this mean for you and me then this is moving on to the last point righteousness received by faith alone how can you know that you're accepted by god this is this is the most important question that you could be faced with in your life how can you know that you're accepted by god well remember luther he couldn't know because the gospel had all but been lost in his day his main stumbling block again was the righteousness of God from Romans 1 17 I mentioned that he understood that to be the exacting justice of God the righteousness of God in verse 17 just listen to his his uh struggle here I I quote him at length Luther said for I hated the word the righteousness of God which according to the use and custom of all the teachers I've been taught to understand that God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction, that is, by my effort. I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by the law of the Decalogue without having God add pain to pain by the gospel, threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. Now listen to this. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he he who through faith is righteous shall live. A little bit of an older translation. Same essence. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely, by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates that's that's luther's conversion well friends this is how you can know that you're accepted by god it's it's through faith in his son it's so beautifully simple just consider this the opposite of faith is not necessarily doubt though it could be a part of that it's been said that the opposite of faith is not doubt but self-reliance. The opposite of faith is not doubt, but self-reliance. Or to put it another way, the opposite of biblical faith is faith in self. The opposite of biblical faith is faith in self. Remember the mantra in Luther's day, you must do what lies within you to be accepted by God. Well, friends, this self-help religion is as old as the hills. Roman Catholicism, sadly, is still there, we need to say, as Protestant Christians. Pick a religion, though, outside of biblical Christianity. It's on you. It is on you to earn your way. The problem with self-help religion is that it leads to delusional false security, on the one hand, or it leads to deeply disturbed consciences on the other, like Luther's. That's what happens. True faith, then, is forsaking all self-reliance, all religious self-performance to try to earn God's favor and putting your faith in the Son's righteous life, his atoning death, his resurrection, his vindication before God. Just consider this. If you're trusting in Christ alone, his acceptance before God is your acceptance. If you're in Christ, your acceptance before the Father is as bulletproof... As Christ's acceptance is. It's rock-solid. So if you're not a believer here today, I would just have to say very clearly that at the moment you do stand condemned as guilty before God. He will not clear your guilt. So let me ask you, what is keeping you from coming to Christ in repentance and faith? Jump off whatever religious treadmill you're on. You say, oh, I'm not religious. Well, no, you are religious. You're, you're on some type of treadmill trying to earn your way to God, if you're honest with yourself. Jump off that religious treadmill and come to Christ by faith. You will enjoy the assurance of justification by faith alone through grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Well, brothers and sisters, after Luther's breakthrough, the gospel spread like wildfire through Germany, through northern Europe, because the people like him, many of them had deeply disturbed consciences. The medieval era leading up to the Reformation was a time of of, uh, of of deep anxiety and fear of death. As the good news of the gospel spread, the people were prepared for it. They were hungry for it. Well, what if we, in our country, even as our country descends into darkness and despair, as many people are either delusional in their self-reliance or have deeply disturbed consciences because the self-help religions of our day don't work, What might happen if the church in the West rediscovered unashamed gospel proclamation? If we rediscovered the beauty and life-giving power of the gospel to the lost? Well, brothers and sisters, the Lord might be pleased to reveal his righteousness through the gospel for the glory of his name and the joy of the people, of all people once again. Let this be our prayer in these dark days let's pray heavenly father we can see that you are a good and gracious god but you are also a holy and just god and father we know that the scriptures ask shall not the judge of all the earth do right and we know that you most certainly will so father i pray for any here who are not found in christ or maybe even confused about the gospel, Lord, open their eyes to see the state of their miserable condition under your judgment. Father, be pleased to save lost sinners, even this morning. And Father, would you just build up this church for those of us who are in Christ. Father, strengthen and fortify this church through the power of the gospel, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's rise and sing together. Amen. Just consider these words from Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we, have been, si- since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have peace with God? If not, come talk to me, come talk to one of the elders, talk to someone in your pew who knows the Lord. You can have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ today. Go in peace. You're dismissed.